It's good to be with you guys tonight. If you don't know, my name is Tim. I work here in the college ministry. And in my contract, I'm not allowed to see anyone. Like I stay in the back and send emails. So don't tell anyone. I snuck up here. So um, I'm really glad to be with you guys tonight. I'm really glad to be looking um, at this part of Romans as we continue our series through the book of Romans and close out one of the best chapters in all of Scripture. Such an exciting uh, passage. Um, and as I was looking this week uh, through this passage, this, um, this phrase got stuck in my head. And I can only assume that it was, it was given to me by God and I couldn't, I couldn't get it out. And it was, what's wrong with being? What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being confident? Oh, ho, ho. It was terrible. All I could get was Demi Lovato in my head. Came on the radio, in the car, every time I go to work. It's like, there's no other songs on the radio station. It's horrifying. Not since the days of Party in the USA has anything plagued my life like this song. So, but what we are talking about tonight is confidence. It's a terrible segue, but that's what I have. And, it, and I wanted to share with you the thing that is just, every time I work on this, it's like that song starts in my head. So you're welcome. Try and get it out. Um, we're going to be talking about confidence tonight. We're going to be talking about uh, what it means to have confidence. And uh, I think when we look at this, the, to be confident in the definition we're talking about tonight is to be sure of something, to have assurance in the life that you live. And I think that most people deal with this in two major camps. You have the one cr- group who's super confident, um, super confident. They're just cool with themselves. They're going to do anything. Um, but they may not have the ability to sort of match up to the confidence. And the best example I can think of this is American Idol. Time you watch, some people just go out there, they give it all they've got, they're ready to go, they have no problem, and they are terrible. And they really should not be so confident. There's a guy who I looked up named, uh, it was William Hong, I think, from a couple seasons back. And I was going to show up, but it was just mean. Uh, and I felt bad. So sometimes we can have confidence, all the confidence in the world in ourselves, but it's, it's really not justified and we really should back up and say, no, probably not. The, the problem that I think is far more common, and I think that most of us fall in this camp if we're honest with ourselves, is we are more inclined to doubt and we are more inclined to feel a lack of assured, assuredness, a lack of confidence in what we're doing. Many of us deal with the fears and the worries and the anxieties of everyday life, of everyday college life. We fear the things that are beyond our control, the things that may happen to us the next day, the unknowns that are just around the corner that we don't see coming, that we don't know if we're going to be able to handle. We fear the future, that day called after college, where you're like, what in the world did I do? And then you get there, and it's more terrifying than you thought. Like, what am I doing? You think of the unexpected things in life, the wreck of your car or, or the student loans or all of these things, the unexpected, the uncontrollable, the worries, the fears, and sometimes even just the anxiety of everyday life, of this week, of how am I going to make it through to this week and how am I going to make it through this semester, this week, today, can just weigh us down. Looking into it, I saw that um, 
40 million adults in the United States deal with some sort of anxiety disorder, ranging from very common to very extreme. As 18% of the population deals with these worries, deals with these anxieties, these doubts, saying, I don't know if I'm going to make it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to handle what's next. I'm terrified that I will not be enough, that I will run out. And then where will I be? How am I going to make it through this? I think as believers, the greatest doubt of all of these, of all the worries that plague us and hold us down, is the doubt that we will not be enough. We try so much to be good enough, to be exactly what God wants, to be what God calls us to. We see these high standards and we want to, to meet it. We want to be there, but we doubt. And in the back of our mind and in our heart of hearts, we say, have I done enough? Am I, am I right? Am I right with God? Why do I doubt it? Why don't I feel right? Why don't I feel at peace? Why am I anxious? Why am I worried? Why am I living in fear and in doubt? I think, in all honesty, working through this passage this week, this is like a a text that means so much to my life because my life has been plagued by worry and by uncertainties through so many different phases. And... I mean, even from when I was a kid, like, I was the kid, if you've ever worked with kids, there's always, like, one kid who's just panicked about everything. You're like, goodness, just, it's okay. That was definitely me. Um, and moving all the way through, through school, through college, through post-college life, these worries sometimes can feel like a burden that we just can't, we just can't shake. And so where do we find confidence? Where do we find the assurance that we will make it, that we can move through each day? Well, that's an issue that Paul is tackling here in Romans chapter 8. We're going to find that Paul tells us we can be certain. We can have security. We can have certainty. Not in ourselves, but in something greater. That builds a confidence that we can face any situation, any trial, anything the day can throw at us. We can face that with confidence. We're going to look at several ways how this confidence is built. We're going to look at two major truths that this passage gives us that build into this confidence that we can live each life. Two major truths. And the first one begins in verses 26 and 27. It was likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings that are too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This, these two verses immediately assume, first, that we are weak. It doesn't begin with our position of strength. It already pulls us right down to where we secretly know we are. We are, we are weak. Too often we, we, we feel fatigued. We feel uh, tired, even, in pain. We are weak. And when we're trying to go through these difficulties, when we're trying to complete this task, reach this goal, we are weak. We need help. The second is that it assumes we will know pain. When he talks about interceding with groanings too deep for words, he's speaking of these times in our life when words run out. When it's difficult even to pray, we don't even know how to come to God. We don't even know how to cry out for help. We've been exhausted. 
We may have just gone through a long stretch that is difficult at the time where it just seems like it's unrelenting. Stuff just keeps coming at us left and right, one thing after the other. We just can't get through it. And we're so tired we don't have words left. Or if we've let this sin come into our life, we've let this behavior just grab a hold of us and we can't get away and we feel so numb to it, we just don't even know what to say. We don't want to go ask for forgiveness yet again. Or we've dealt with a pain, an injury that someone's done to us or that the world has done to us, a loss that cuts us so deep there just aren't words to express it. You may have experienced a time in your life where you or a friend has been hurt and, and you sit next to them to try and comfort them, to try and console them, and there's not, there's no words. There's nothing to say. Well, this passage offers us hope because even though these times will come, even though we will be weak, even though we will be hurt deeply, it promises that the Spirit will help us. We know that God helps us in all weakness. The Spirit helps us in all weakness. When we are weak, when we are without words, the Spirit comes alongside us and He prays for us. The Spirit gives us these words. The Spirit teaches us how to pray all over again. That's an amazing thought. Not only is God telling us, hey, I'm available, I'm listening, the line is open. He's saying, the line is open and I'm using it for you. I am getting you help. I am giving you words. That is the most basic form of help there is. That is a help that is inexhaustible, that you can't get to a point low enough to where this help is no longer available to you. There's never a time when you can't pray. There's never a time you say, I don't, I don't know how or I don't have the words. No, the Spirit is there with us. He knows our pain. He's, he's right alongside us and he's giving us aid. He's giving us help all along through the entire process. He, he gives words to our pain. He gives words to God. He, he brings our needs to the Father and lays them at his feet. And as a, a friend, indeed, a helper in our time of weakness. The Spirit also empathizes with our pain. He, he is groaning too. This this looks back to the passage that Kevin talked about last week, how all of creation is groaning right now because this world is broken, it's full of sin, it's full of pain, and the world itself is groaning. And it says we're groaning with it, and the Spirit is so in tune with us and so in tune with our hurt, He's right there. He groans alongside us. That's the ultimate companion, the ultimate help, the ultimate friend. And he points to something bigger than that. Not only does the Spirit pray for us, but he prays according to the will of God. Sometimes I think we can assume when difficult situations come, we think God is just not with me right now. God just doesn't care. God must not know. Or he is doing this to me because I've done something wrong. But that's not what this passage points us to. This passage says the Spirit is, is right along with the Father. The Father, too, wants to help us. The Father, too, is alongside us. And, and the Spirit is praying according to the will of God the Father. That's amazing. We have the Trinity is working together to help us in our weakness. God, who shaped the universe, who holds it all together, is listening to you. And he's giving words to your pain. He's giving words to your weakness. And he's providing you the help that you need. What an assurance that we don't have to look to ourselves. We don't have to be strong. We can be weak and know that help is there. We are never without help. We are never beyond prayer. We are never alone. So that is our first building block. We know that God helps us in all of our weaknesses. The second 
moves into one of the most well-known verses. Um, If you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard Romans 8.28 before. And this offers this second building block of what it means um, to have assurance. The second building block that gives us hope. Um, Now this verse, um, for those of you who don't know, it begins in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Famous verse. You've probably heard it before. You've probably memorized it. You've maybe seen it on a cool little poster next to like a lake or something peaceful like that. You know, really nice. And I think this, this is an incredible verse. And, and the promises and what it's saying here is, is mind-blowing. But we need to be careful and we need to understand it um, in, in the way it's explained. And we need to see exactly what Paul is telling us here. Because sometimes I, th- I think we want to say, like, this verse is kind of like hakuna matata, you know? Oh, it'll work out. Everything works together, you know? Um, you know, everything's, everything's good. No, no problem. Everything is, is happy. Um, just kind of go with the flow, you know? Chill. Um, but that's not really what's happening here. That's not really what Paul um, is saying. So we need to clarify exactly what he is saying. And, and what he's pointing to here is that God works in all things for our good. So, I want to break this down a little bit and understand. He says that God works together for good in all things. So, who is working? Well, first it says God is working. The idea in our culture, the idea that um, our whole kind of worldview is built on is, is kind of just that the world is just kind of this huge machine and it's just kind of going. It's just... It's, it's whirling and, and the planets are spinning and it's all just kind of out there and it's going and it's this huge, um, just like ball of chance almost. The ancient Greeks of Paul's time would have thought that the world was controlled by the fates. Even Zeus and the gods were subject to the fates. Things just happened for certain reasons and there wasn't really anything you can do about it. You just had to roll with it. Um, and today we kind of believe that everything's just math. Like it's just mathematical chance. And things are going to happen. Um, this will happen. This might happen. Who knows? It's chance. You roll with it. You do the best you can. Well, the Bible doesn't leave us room for that. The Bible tells us that the world is not a machine that's ticking along. It is carefully crafted by a person. It's carefully crafted by God who knows each and every turn, each and every move. Everything happens according to what God says. God has not left it alone to do its own thing. He is carefully, carefully adjusting each and every piece. God is in control of all things. All things that happen are according to God's will. There aren't accidents. Like God doesn't just miss something sometimes. Or God, well, he didn't have anything to do with that. No, he did. Like God's will is moving through everything that happens from the, from the biggest thing to the smallest thing, which is, which is incredible. All things God is working. Secondly, who? Who is this working for? Who is all these things working for good? Well, he gives us two groups. He says it works, everything works together for those who love God first and those who are called according to his purpose. What do these two things mean? For those who love God, when the Bible talks about loving God, it's not just the emotional feeling. It's not just, oh, I I just love him. I I love him so much. I love pizza. I love these things. They make me happy. That's that's part of it. There is an emotional element too, but it's about those who have devoted their lives to the love of something. 
So it's a, it's a commitment to love. It is a pattern of love. In John, it even says that those who love God obey God. They're following God. They're, they're in relationship with God. So it's those who, who know and have devoted themselves to obedience to God, to, um, to love of God with their entire life. The second thing is those who are called according to his purpose. Now, some argue and say that, well, everybody is called by God in some way. God calls it to everyone. And that's true, but this, this passage isn't talking about everyone. It's a little bit narrower than that. He's saying those who have been put in relationship with God, those who God um, has brought near to himself, those who God knows as his people. So we see these two categories are talking about believers, talking about Christians. For God works together for good for his people, for Christians in life, those who are chosen by God, those who are called according to his purposes, and those who love God and who live their life um, as part of God's purposes. So this, this is the group, and, and God is working everything for the good of this group of believers. God is working for our good. So we talked about, again, what does this mean? If God controls everything, if God is everywhere, if everything happens according to his plan, what does this mean for us? What does it mean that God is working all things according to our good? Well, it means that everything in our lives, from the traffic light you hit coming here that went red, to the place where you were born and you becoming a believer, and, and everything else is part of God's plan. It is part of what God is orchestrating. The fears we have of random things, of, of things that just happen, those things don't actually happen because God is working each thing. It's, it's kind of mind-blowing. John Piper is one who comes up with this idea of a red light. Like, the red light we stop at is not random. To the smallest thing, God is using the situations of our life to accomplish his purpose. He's using each and every little thing. So nothing you did today was by accident. Nothing you did today was random. It is God working for your good. That's a comforting thought. We're not wandering through a world of random occurrences and chance where anything might happen, and, and who knows? No, we are in God's hands. And they're not the hands that are against us. They are hands that are for us, hands that are working for our good in each and every situation. Now, it doesn't promise that all of these things are what we call good things, quote-unquote. It, it says that all things are worked for good. So the good is the goal that we're going to, but the things itself that we experience are not necessarily what we would call good. So the things in life that hurt, the things in life that we talked about before that are, that are painful, that are trying, that are terrible, the things that we, that we hate, that we don't like, that we don't want to go through those things, those are, those are bad. Those are, those are not good things. But we go through them and God uses them for his purpose. God repurposes the things that happen to us to achieve his good ends. So when the Christian suffers, we don't have to say, yay, I got hit by a car this afternoon. I'm really happy about that. Because like, there are people who kind of take that attitude about things that happen and they like try and plaster like a smile on their face. Like, that was great. I'm having, this is awesome. Great day. No, it's, it's okay to say, this, this sucks. That was terrible. Uh, you know, these things are bad. Bad things um, can be used for God's good purposes. Keller, in, in his uh, commentary about this, says that terrible situations can be for our benefit and wonderful situations can be for our harm. See, the inverse of all of this is if all situations, good and bad, are being used by God 
for the good of his people. It means that all situations, the good and bad, are for the bad of those who are not his people. If when we are gods, when, when God has us as his people, if we are believers, everything, each and everything, the good and the bad, works together for his good purpose. But when we do not have Christ, when we are outside his will, then each and everything in our life moves us farther away from him. Each and everything is to our detriment. We learn from this passage that it's not the situations in life that we need to change. It's, it's the heart that changes. You see, when a heart that's been, that's been formed by God, that's been redeemed and justified by God, goes through a bad situation, God uses it to produce his good result. And when they go through a good situation, God uses it to produce a good result. So when, when a Christian goes through something good, he says, Lord, thank you for this good thing you've given me. And we praise God for it, and that's a good thing. And when the Christian goes through a bad situation and says, Father, I need your help. I need to come to you. I need your grace. I need you to shape me through this. I need you to teach me through this. And it works for our good. But when we don't have Christ, when we don't have that new heart, the good situation says, that's awesome. I'm pretty great. I'm glad I got this thing done. And it hardens our heart. It gives us pride. It it builds that self-sufficiency that turns us away from God. So the good thing moves us farther in the wrong direction. And when the the bad thing happens to the non-believer, we say, this is terrible. God must hate me. I'm just going to do my own thing. I don't care about that. And they move further away. It's not the situations in our life that affect us. It's the heart that's dealing with the situations that happen to us. It's like no matter what what elements or what uh, pressures you apply to a diamond, it will not break. It will be polished and, and made even, even brighter and better if you apply really light pressure that's not hard at all, like the polish, or if you apply tremendous pressure to it, it will not break because its substance is good. It has been, it, it is hard is good. But when you do the same thing to like, a styrofoam packing peanut, it'll just shatter either way. The situations itself don't matter. It's the heart that we need a new thing. It's the heart change that matters. So we see that God is working in all situations. We can be comforted to know that God has, in all things, a good purpose in mind. He has our good in mind. So, so what is this good purpose? If it's not to have good things happen to me all the time, it's not for just you know easy things and, and, and things that help me, things that I want... Well, what does this mean? Paul continues when he goes into verses 29 and 30. What are these good purposes? He says, For those he, uh, sorry, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's good purpose, the thing that he works all things towards, is for us to be conformed to the image of his son. We talked last week about the promise of adoption, how God takes us when we were enemies of God and makes us his sons. Well, this is like a, a continuation of that, a step beyond it. Not only are we adopted, but we start to have a family resemblance. We start to look more and more like Christ. We become brothers, siblings of Christ. That's astounding. Think about that. Christ, who is Savior, who is God, Christ is making us to be like him. He is making us his brothers, his, his sisters, his siblings in Christ. 
We are being transformed by all of these situations in life, by the red lights and by the, the homework and, and the way we deal with every situation God gives us. He is working towards this glorious plan to make us more and more like Jesus. And that is a good purpose. That is a good news. We can be sure of this. He continues, he lists these five verbs that is the process that God does to, to bring about this transformation. He lists he, that he foreknows us, that he predestines us, that he calls us, that he justifies us, and he glorifies us. These five things are in three phases. First, he looks to before the foundation of the world. We are foreknown. God knew us beforehand. And predestined. God set our destination. God set the goal for us before time existed, before you existed, before the planets and everything had come into being. God knew you and he set a plan for you. Now, that's, so that's God planning. That's God getting ready to do this good purpose. And then now, in the present time, he has called us. That's why we are believers. We've heard his call. We've, we've learned what it means to follow Christ. We've learned what Christ has done for us. And we are justified. That is what we've been learning about in Romans this entire time. God makes us right before him. Christ's sacrifice is given to us. Christ's righteousness is put on off. And and we are made just. That's happening in the present time. God is working that right now. We are called. We are justified. And the promise is that he will continue it into the future where we will be glorified. That's the completion of the process to be made into the image of Christ, to have all sin removed, to have all hurt and all pain removed, to reach the hope and the promise that all of history is moving towards. That's his promise. That's this process from before time, during time, and after time that God is working in our lives. That is what all things are moving towards. This is what God is doing in everything in our life. If we're one of those things, we're all of them. If we know we've been called, that means we've been foreknown. That means we've been predestined. That means we will be glorified. It is sure. When Paul is writing this, he writes glorified in the past tense. Glorified will happen in the, in the unknown future, outside of time, but it's so sure, he writes about it like it's already happened. If you are one in, of these five things, you are all of them. It's like this, this chain it's, it's firm, it's strong, you can hold to it. It's a, it's a solid hope. We can look back and see what God has done. We can see what God is doing now and we can look forward to what he's promised to do. This gives us assurance. We can be sure. There are no accidents. There are no unforeseen, uncontrollable things. God controls it all and God is working for our good. We can be sure of these. This is our promise. This is our confidence to face anything that faces that we will come against, anything that we will face each and every day. We can be sure of this. So what will we do in light of this? What will, we, what will be our response? What shall we say to these things? This is what Paul moves into. In light of these two promises, how do we live? How are we to transfer this into confidence in each day? We're to remind ourselves of these truths. Paul shifts into these five questions. And he, it, sometimes when you just, you know something, but you're not living like it, you're not really believing it. Sometimes you need someone to ask you a question you know the answer to, right? Like, do you trust God? Basically, you know, it's, it's like an answer where you go, yes, okay, that's right. I know that. That's what Paul does here. He's emphasizing with these questions. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also graciously give us all things? 
Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn. He's saying, do you feel afraid? Because the God who works all things in existence, all things today, tomorrow, and every day, everything, the God who works all those things is for us. Why are you afraid? He says, are you anxious? Because the God who gave up everything, the God who sacrificed his own son is for you. How is he going to not give you everything? Why are you anxious? Why do you feel that you don't have what you need? He says, do you feel guilty? Christ has died for you. Christ has given you his righteousness. Christ's blood has been shed. He has died in our place so that we can be made right. Why feel guilty? We don't need to. It doesn't make sense. He's so clear. It's such clear logic. Why are you afraid? Why are you anxious? Why do you worry? Why do you feel condemned and guilty? There is no condemnation, he points us. He reminds us of. All of these questions are ultimately asking the biggest question, the question that is the greatest doubt in all of life. What can separate us from the love of Christ? What shall separate us from the love of Christ? In verse 35, all of these questions are just that question. That's the question that's the heart of all of our doubts. Will something keep me away from God's love in Jesus Christ? Jesus is the point of all of this here. That's what Paul's been talking about for this whole chapter. We are justified in Christ. It's not us doing it. It's not us being good enough. It's not us being strong enough. It's not us being in control of our situation. It's not us having the perfect plan or, or the, the perfect life. We are weak and we are out of control, but we are in the hands of a God who is in control, a God who is strong. We have been made right in Jesus Christ. What have we to fear? In fact, because of these things, he says, we are more than conquerors. A conqueror is one who not only destroys his opponent, but he subjugates them. Not only do these things that were coming at us to destroy us, these difficult situations, these anxieties in life, these, these things that meant to kill us, they're not only defeated, but they're, they're repositioned and they help us. God uses them not just to get rid of them, but to make us like his son, to move us closer to his ultimate goal, to glorify us with Christ. We are more than conquerors. We have nothing to fear because of Jesus, because of what Jesus does. In Jesus, we are more than conquerors. So he says, what shall come against us? What shall separate us? Shall tribulation, shall distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? He doesn't just speak to us today who deal with anxiety and, and, and doubt and fear. He speaks to those who are dying for Christ, those who are risking their lives to, to follow Christ, to be baptized, those people who are literally facing death each day. And he says, shall those things separate you from the love of Christ? No. That is his answer. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. More than that, he says, I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. There's our confidence right there. We are with Christ. We don't earn this. We don't do good enough for this. We don't get strong enough. 
We don't earn this. We don't live a good enough life. But Jesus has. Jesus has lived a perfect life. He has died the death that we deserve. And he stands glorified before the Father. And he is working in every situation in our life to bring us to that goal. To make us more and more like his son. To make us more and more like Christ each day. We can go into each day, each and every day, tomorrow, the next day, everything. No matter what you will face, you have God himself working in those situations. We don't need to fear the unknown, for God knows it. We don't need to feel what we can't control, because God controls it. We don't need to fear our weakness, because God is strong in Christ. Christ is our rock. Christ is our anchor. Christ is our confidence. Confidence only makes sense when it's in something that's sure, that won't ever break away. And in Christ, we are sure. Nothing will separate us. Nothing will hold us back. Nothing will destroy us. Christ is our hope. Christ is our assurance to live each day with confidence. God promises help in all weakness. God works in all situations. And God tells us we can have all confidence through Christ. Let's pray. Father, we begin where this passage does by, by telling you our weakness. We are weak and we are unable to do this on our own. Father, I am plagued by doubts and insecurities and I am all too aware, like the rest of us, that I'm not good enough. I'm not, I'm not enough. So we praise you, Father, for Christ who has died in our place whose body was broken for us, whose blood was spilled for us so that we might be free, free of sin, free of fear, and free of these, free of doubts. Father, I pray that we would remind ourselves daily of these truths and that by remembering them, Lord, we would rejoice and we would live a life of confidence in you, Lord, not in ourselves, not in our own strength, but in your strength. Father, we love you. In your name we pray, amen.